0: Hello, welcome back to the Ridley Institute podcast for another conversation on Christian faith and discipleship in our secular age. I'm your host, Sam Fornicker, director of seminary programs here at the Ridley Institute, where we are working to foster solid theological education in and for the local church. It's our conviction at Ridley that the church can neither stand firm on the gospel nor minister in the power of the gospel if she is not equipped to persevere in the truth of the gospel. Christian discipleship, therefore, it commits Christians to living in light of biblical truth. And what classic Christian theological reflection has taught us, with salient reminders over the last half-century especially, is that biblical truth can and ought to be approached in two main interpenetrating uh, aspects or ways. These two broad realms of Christian teaching contain the vital treasures of Christian doctrine. On the one hand, we have the treasure of what theologians call soteriology, the theology of our salvation. It's in soteriology that we express and formulate biblical teaching concerning the question of how God has saved, is saving, and will save us. On the other hand, we have the treasure of theology in its most proper sense, meaning teaching about who God is in himself, in his own good, glorious, and praiseworthy life. Um, so I'm delighted to welcome today Fred Sanders, professor of theology in the Tory Honors College at Biola University. Um, Fred, really wonderful to have you with us today.
1: Thanks a lot. It's good to be here, Sam.
0: Fred, you've you've written a lot on the relationship of these two realms of biblical teaching, if, if I can put it that way, soteriology and Trinitarian theology. And most recently, you've published a book with Erdman's Fountain of Salvation. Trinity, and soteriology. So I wonder, Fred, if if we could just start with a kind of um, appeal, maybe, to to certain listeners. I'm thinking here of a person who's serious about Scripture, uh, committed to the teaching of the Bible, a person who loves Jesus, living in dependence on the Holy Spirit, a a serious disciple, but also maybe someone who doesn't see the, the relevance of trinitarian doctrine for the for the Christian life. So could you kick us off by commenting a bit on why trinitarian doctrine ought to matter to anyone who takes his or her discipleship seriously?
1: Yeah, and what you're touching on here is really what I sometimes call my life message, which I uh, when I think about the different books I've written, they all keep coming back to something like this. It's the way the doctrine of the Trinity, the, the reality of who the triune God is according to his self-revelation and the gospel, you know, the doctrine of salvation, the way these two go together. And these are, um, as I say, several different ways in this book, Fountain of Salvation, these are two gigantic doctrinal complexes. You know, hmm. you could obviously study your whole life on either one of them theologically, and it, they're not things you solve or get to the bottom to. you know, they're, they're, hmm. they're realms of discourse and insight. Hmm. And then to relate them properly um, is really kind of what this book is primarily about. So, it kind of depends on which side you're on. If you've been most excited about the doctrine of the Trinity as kind of a you know a fascinating, high revelation of God's you know um, incomprehensible identity, mm. um, but you but you're content with it there, and you don't think it sort of strikes ground in your Christian life anywhere, yeah. then then I would want to come in with a message like, oh no, it directly illuminates and, and tends towards uh, an understanding of the gospel.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, then on the other hand, so then I, you know, then I would have a lot to say about that. On the other (laughs) hand, if I'm talking to someone who's very, um, uh, you know, very evangelical in the sense of being very salvation centered and, you know, likes the, the practical, experiential, devotional, intimate warmth of, of the Christian life, Hmm. um, I would say, make sure that in that experience, you are aware that you are, um, under this vast horizon of the being of God, mm. right? This is not just a thing in your life, uh, but I'd like to open up a skylight here and point out to you the ways in which this evangelical experience um, opens up onto who God is.
0: Mm. It, is. it Which dead bishop said it? Was it Mool or was it Ryle who said, you know, there's no good... Uh, there's no good theology. That's not devotional theology. No good devotion. That's untheological. Or, yes. You, yes. You, you know what I'm getting at there. I know
1: that one. Yeah, that does sound like mole
0: uh, Yeah, I think it is Mul. Love. Oh, what a saint. Okay. Well, let's. So let's let's get stuck in a, a pervasive theme in your writing. I mean, all of it. I think has has been the biblical nature under, underlined there. The biblical nature of Trinitarian doctrine. Um, but of course, as as you well know, one of the things that Christians often find concerning is how difficult it can be to connect the Old and New Testament scriptures with the doctrine of the Trinity, considering, for example, you know, the word Trinity, the word person in a, you know, in a Trinitarian sense, that never, scripture never uses these words or never uses these words in these ways. Um, So it might seem like a doctrine that we've kind of glued on to a very uh, simple biblical message, something like what Sicinian said in the 17th century, right? Um, what what moves do we need to make as readers of Scripture in order to arrive at or, or to begin the project of Trinitarian biblical reasoning?
1: Yeah, that's good. Uh, there are, there, again, there might be two broad approaches to this. One would be if you're confessionally located, such mm. that you have church documents that you can pick up and study with some confidence and say, you know, these are my community's reliable guides to the right interpretation of Scripture. Mm. Um, they, I'll just gamble here and say they are all going to direct you to the fact that the Trinitarian reading of Scripture is the right one. Mm. So so that can be a way in, you, know? mm-hmm. you know, whether it's Westminster or the 39 Articles or uh, Baptist Faith and Message, you know, whatever you've got. Yeah. Um, Um, I will bet they will tell you with some authority, you know, the relative authority appropriate to a creed or a confession. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They will point you to Scripture and say, here is how to read. So there's kind of a ruled reading that's really valuable.
2: Mm.
1: But uh, as great as that is, and that's sort of the the normal way of getting at the Trinity in Scripture, um, it is open to the Socinian critique or to someone saying, uh, oh, I see, you can't get the Trinity out of Scripture unless you're carefully taught how to do it, which is... Uh, let me say it skeptically, which is exactly how I would treat a doctrine that wasn't really in Scripture.
2: You know <laughs> right, what I mean? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> sort of like
1: you can't make the Bible mean what the Jehovah's Witnesses think it means unless you are carefully led by the Watchtower Organization to read it the right way according to them.
0: Mm, come and speak so, with um, our leaders. Yeah, being alert.
1: Yeah, cool. yeah, being alert to that, you know, um, skepticism, but also being alert to the fact that any of these confessions, any of the Church Fathers, any of the great reformers. When you read them, they're not saying, believe the Trinity on my authority,
2: Mm.
1: but believe that the Trinity is a biblical doctrine on my authority. Mm. They're saying, it is in Scripture, you will find it there. Mm. Um, So, you know, if someone says, I believe in the Trinity because Athanasius tells me to, I can just hear poor Athanasius, you know, rolling in his grave or lamenting from heaven or whatever. Um, no, that's the worst reason I can think of to believe in the Trinity. <laughs> what an unpatristic way I, uh... to affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, God alone is fit witness of Himself, as Hilary of Poitiers says. Yeah. And uh, to affirm that the Trinity is a biblical doctrine is to affirm that God has borne witness to Himself in this way. Mm. So what that opens up is really the way of exploration and discovery, which I always um, want to extend an invitation to. Mm.
2: Um,
1: I, I minister a lot in low church evangelical settings, these are my people, this is who I am. Where we don't, if I say, go give me your confession or your creed, not everyone will immediately jump, you know, like, oh, yes, I carry it around in my back pocket. <laughs> sure, they're not hostile or anti-creedal in that way, but it's just, they don't think, yes, of course, the 39 articles or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for those people, I want to work my way of invitation and say, um, if you read the entire Bible, master its contents somewhat, then take a step back and ask, what's, what's the big picture? I know it's all confusing, and Obadiah's in there and 3rd John, and there's all the details I can get lost in, but big, big picture from across the room. Mm. What's the Bible saying? Mm. That's where I want to recommend that what it's saying is, um, in the fullness of time for us and our salvation, the father sent the son and the father and the son sent the spirit. And that is not just a thing God did, but is also, uh, a revelation of who he eternally is.
0: Mm. I can't, I can't wait to (laughs) dig into this more. Okay. So, (laughs) So early on in Fountain of Salvation, this this new book with Erdmans, you help readers to think through um, s- s- something some, I, I, something called the, the Trinitarian re- Renaissance. Basically, people refer to it in different ways, but this 20th century explosion of interest again in uh, in Trinitarian theology. You talk, by the way, really wonderfully carefully about to what extent it was a, a really a retrieval or a, you know. Um, but to move on to the question, you, you, help readers to think through some of the wheat and some of the chaff of this Trinitarian Renaissance, if that's what we want to call it. Can you give us the lie of the land when it comes to this 20th century resurgence of, of interest? Um, why, to what extent was interest in the Trinity lacking in the first place before this movement came about? Why might that have been? And, um, what did the folks who are participating in this movement? I'm thinking people like Karl Rahner. What did they think that they were bringing to the table?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And just autobiographically, this is the um, this is the theological setting in which I was educated and trained. Um, mm. So, you know, a real movement in the 60s, 70s and 80s that kind of reached a high point of excitement uh, and self-conscious energy, I would say, in the in the 90s. Um, And some of these major authors, you start all the way back with a kind of uh, the the great Carls, right? (laughs) Hart and Rahner, sort of turning of theology in this particular Trinitarian direction. And then all all the names are the heavy hitters that would be big in seminary culture in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. You know, Jensen, Gunton, um, Torrance, Lacuna on the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm. Um, It was I mean, a lot was going on in that revival uh, or renaissance. It was at least a publishing event. It's just a lot of books. Yeah. <laughs> I started into it thinking I can I can read all the recent books on the Trinity, and then, you know, as as the books just kept coming uh, through these years, I realized, oh no, this is a this is a real going concern. Mm. One way to characterize this renaissance of interest in the Trinity in academic theology, is to say that. The doctrine had floated somewhat into an abstract or speculative sort of, you know, doctrine about God, but that doesn't have much to do with the way we do the rest of theology. Mm, and mm. so there was a real turn towards soteriology, or in the most common language of the movement, uh, the economy of salvation, mm. um, the, you know, the history, uh, the, the planned history by which God brings about salvation. Mm. Um, That turn to the economy was, I think, in a lot of ways, a good corrective against an abstract and speculative development of the doctrine of the Trinity, but it went a bit too far to uh, to such an extent that just, for some theologians, there came to be a sense that God was absolutely identified in, with, and by the work of salvation, Mm. sort of like there's there's no God outside of this work of salvation Mm -hmm. that is God's essence to do. That's kind of an extreme statement of it, but um, maybe the best symbolic book for this is a, a magisterial but flawed book, Catherine Mowry Lacuna's uh, God for Us, mm. the Trinity and the Christian Life, mm-hmm. um, which kind of brought together in a synthetic way all that had been going on and pressed it forward uh, with the, the claim that the doctrine of the Trinity is an eminently, uh, eminently that is, an exaltedly um, practical doctrine, a Mm -hmm. radical teaching about the nature of the Christian life. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a case of what good is it anyway?
1: Uh, That's right, yeah. And kind of an overcorrection. I mean, I I certainly don't want an abstract um, uh, impractical doctrine of the Trinity in the the last result. You know, God's truth works um, and who God is matters for the kind of salvation that He's brought to us. Um, But there was kind of an overcorrection in the direction of the economy. And so um, a lot of my work has been part of a uh, counter-reaction, I suppose. You know, you don't want to go through life being reactionary, but if you're, if you're if you're going off one side of the road, you do want to try to get it back up between the ditches. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, an attempt to recapture the assayity of God, the self-sufficiency of God, the freedom of God's grace in making uh, Himself available to us mm. in this particular kind of salvation.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, one of the challenges, I think, of moving from Scripture to Trinitarian doctrine is the challenge of knowing in what sense the economy, God's God's saving acts in history, invite us to peer into or give us a window onto the divine life, right? It's it's often um, been said that the missions contain the processions, which I think we could fairly summarize as the teaching that the sending of the Son and the outpouring of the Spirit, so incarnation and Pentecost, reveal, in, in some way, the eternal processions of the Son and of the Spirit in, in the divine life. But as you point out, we need to be careful, because not everything in the economy maps onto the divine life in that way. Um, we could read, I think, I think this is an example that you use, we could read of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, and we could then draw the conclusion that, oh, well, the Son proceeds from the Spirit, which, of course, we don't go, we don't go ahead and say. So um, I guess my question is what, you know, why not? What, what are the limitations in how we think backwards theologically from the economy? Big question. To reformulate that if you like.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And um, a couple of things I would say is you can keep your eye on arguments f- from necessity. So if someone says um, the mission of the son uh, is such that it had to be the son who took on this mission, mm. uh, it, it's like it. Automatically or necessarily expresses or maps onto who God is. That this would happen.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: That, that this is a very speculative question in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, could another person of the Trinity had become incarnate? I, I, I uh, I'd be happy to live in a situation where that question never came up. But you know, like a lot of these scholastic questions from the Middle Ages, once it comes up, you can try to keep ignoring it, but people are going to behave as if they've got an answer to it, and yeah. so you might, in fact, have to go in there and, you know. Put up a flag and admit, I'm doing some speculative work here. There are mm-hmm. not going to be any Bible verses that directly bear on this question in this form. But mm-hmm. and you could also say, and the answer I get will in some ways matter less than how I get to the answer. Right. That's often the value of these speculative sorts of questions.
0: Can you unpack that? That's really helpful. Can you unpack that a little bit more?
1: Yeah. Um, so if you're going to ask the the scholastic speculative question, could any person of the Trinity have become incarnate? Um obviously we're not dealing here in the realm of heresy or contradiction of defined church doctrine Mm. or contradiction of clear statements of scripture. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in one sense, um, not much hangs on how you answer that question, Mm. but how you get to your answer matters a lot. So for instance, if I say, well, it had to be the sun because it is impossible for God to act in any other way um, than this, then you'd want to say, Oh, that's interesting. you now you've stipulated some boundaries for divine action and like Hmm. what would those be you know are they are they are they boundaries like god cannot lie which okay that's a that's a biblical sort of statement from titus and you know we could we could follow that or they you know god cannot act in any other way than he has acted you know why would you say that Mm. what what underlying values and commitments are you surfacing when you make that kind of claim that that's kind of what matters there In a lot of the modern Trinitarian uh, Renaissance, um, there was a pretty strong commitment to the idea that it necessarily had to be the Son who was incarnate, because if it weren't, we wouldn't really know anything about God's eternal life. Mm-hmm. Um, that The, the mission, uh, the procession of the Son had to terminate in the Son's sending, mm-hmm. otherwise God's just sort of like sending signals from afar. Yeah. That's not the classical view, that's not Aquinas' view or Luther's view, Um, it's not Anselm's view. Um, All all of these authors from most of Church history considered this question in some sort of, you know, distant way, Mm -hmm. and said, uh, as Aquinas says, um, uh, any person of the Trinity could have joined human nature um, to himself uh, by assumption, Hmm. um, and carried out some kind of salvation. Now, what they then go on to say is Aquinas does that in about half a page, then spends the whole next page pointing out how incredibly fitting and appropriate it was that it be the Son who did this.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, a little bit of speculation on, we would have had a whole different economy of salvation carried out mm-hmm. if God had decided to order it to Himself differently than He did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a celebration of the um, the fittingness, or the super-fittingness, yeah. the extreme appropriateness of the Son, the second person of the Trinity being the one who takes on the mission of incarnation. Interesting.
0: Okay. So moving away yeah. from kind of a syllogistic necessity of, you know, if-thens yeah. if, if thins, um, to the notion of fittingness, very helpful. Related to all of this is the slightly more technical question. Well, uh, maybe equally technical question of how you relate the, the triune God to his work of atonement. Um, you talk about two different approaches to the question. One, which locates the doctrine of the Trinity within the atonement. Um, By the way, this is your language. I don't expect listeners to know what this means, you know, automatically. One of these approaches locates the doctrine of the Trinity, quote, within the atonement. Uh, The other locates the atonement, as it were, within the Trinity. Two very different approaches. I I noticed both Christologically focused, perhaps to the exclusion of other important considerations. Could could you... uh, say a bit about this?
1: Yeah, um, so step one is to take the word atonement and sort of blow it up to the largest possible level. Mm. Um, That is to say, I'm not talking about the outcome of Christ's work on the cross, I'm not even just talking about the cross, but I'm following my friend Adam Johnson, who's written a lot on the atonement, in treating it as a kind of a mega theme of of Christian doctrine, Mm. almost, almost the same as talking about soteriology, just very broadly. Yeah, um, so then, once you've got the Trinity as a very large doctrine, a mega doctrine, and atonement as a mega doctrine in that sense, um, the question is sort of how do they relate? And I, I propose a schema, just looking at all the different 20th-century theology on this, and trying to say, well, who's who's done what exactly? And one approach would be to make atonement so large and comprehensive that you sort of um, you you build trinitarian theology inside of it, as if. Atonement's the larger structure, you know, mm-hmm. God God with us, God for us. And mm-hmm. then inside of that, you have a statement about the identity of God. Mm-hmm. Maybe the best person to read as an example of this is the late Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who, um,
1: you know, a really stimulating theological author to look at. Um, but in this case, he, he really construes the identity of God as, um, uh, as a way of understanding what God has done for us. Um, in salvation Hmm. so I'm not sure how much more to say about that you know, without getting into the details of of, of some of his system but it's the large metaphor that I use for this is sort of Trinity inside of the larger structure of atonement or Mm -hmm. God with us Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the alternative approach I mean that's got some strengths in terms of like the immediacy and the directness and how exciting it is to read Jensen's theology (laughs) and some of the biblical themes it picks up Uh, but at least I step away from that at the end of the day and say well that's that's a bit overcharged and it's hard for me to make statements about God's aseity, that God's, Mm -hmm. um, God's independence Mm -hmm. uh, from, uh, from redeeming his creation Mm -hmm. um, on on this basis. Yeah. The other approach is um, what I call um, atonement in Trinity. And this is more of a direction of sort of how you think of things. This is a in this, I'm trying to describe some modern theologians who say the stuff that happens in the economy, we should take those things and read them back up into the being of God. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe the most popular or widespread example of this that's so so evocative is something like Moltmann mm-hmm. looking at the um, alienation between father and son that he reads as happening on the cross. You know, he takes the strong reading, oh, my God, why have you forsaken me, yeah. to indicate some kind of real rupture within the, uh, within the relationship between Father and Son, mm. and, and then to take that as not just something that happened on a hill far away, you know, at Golgotha, but to say, that is in the being of God. Wow. So, atonement within the Trinity in that sense. Mm-hmm. There are a number of uh, kind of high-octane, speculative, modern Trinitarian theologies that, in various ways, place the events of the economy... Inside of the triunity of God,
0: I wonder Ed, in in what ways would a move like Moltmann's differ from what you think of a, a kind of um, traditional Reformed approach to a doctrine like you know an an, an eternal like the, the Pactum Salutis, the the eternal covenant between you know the Father and the Son. It, to to what extent are these things? I mean, this they, they seem quite distinct to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, what are some of the things that are operative in in the move that Moltmann is making that are not operative in like a traditional historic uh, sorry, traditional reform doctrine of, say, Pactum Salutis?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And and Moltmann, of course, was a certain kind of reformed theologian but who was extremely excited about some key Lutheran themes that he developed in his own work. And then um, I would say the difference with Pactum salutis, depending on who you're reading as they sort of develop that traditionally, um, there's a clear recognition of divine freedom and grace. Mm. Um, Everything about the idiom of a covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son and the unity of the Spirit, um, everything about talking that way tends toward—I want to say this um, (laughs) carefully—tends toward a kind of a story in God, like— once upon a time, the father said to the son, "Let us save humanity." And the son replied, "Yes, absolutely. Let us do it this way." Um, you know, there's a, there's a little story built into covenant of redemption or pactum or salutis, uh-huh. um, and then people who develop that theme theologically have to deal with that. You know, clarify. We're not talking mythologically the three persons of the Trinity are not three distinct people who enter into negotiations with each other. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of things suggested by the motif of the pact of salvation yeah, um, yeah, that, you know, you want to handle carefully in that tradition. The upside of it, though, is nobody thinks it's sort of like automatically rolling out of the structure of the being of God. Mm. What's clear when you start talking that pactum language is that The wisdom of God, his good pleasure, the purpose of his wisdom, you know, themes from Ephesians 1 here. um, uh, These are all being acted out in the free choice of God to work for us and our salvation. Hmm. That's what's missing in um, so much of, of that modern theology in the late 20th century, certainly in Moltmann. Moltmann characteristically says exciting and wonderful things that make you lean in and want to, you know, read your Bible better and see what you were missing. But there's a kind of a disappointment when you realize, oh, the cost of this is some kind of Hegelian taking up of the world process into the being of God.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And
1: by the time you get there, you think, well, that sort of spoils everything. I I didn't sign up for this Hegelianizing Mm -hmm. kind of taking up of the world into the absolute. Yeah. Um, or, Or if you just approach it from the point of view of God's suffering, there's this initial excitement of saying, wow, God is really in this with us. This is not some superficial thing here arranged by remote control, but something in Moltmann's way of talking about the Trinity at the cross, um, you know, really seems to mean it. But then to realize, well, if I could retain the excitement of that, but frame it properly with divine freedom and deity, that would Mm. be best, because otherwise I've taken pain and put it inside of God. And when I do that, I've rendered pain absolute, eternal, immutable, and inexhaustible.
2: Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right?
1: Because <laughs> you you can't partition sections of God and say, "Well, there's a little bit of pain in there in one place." Like, no. If if world process and suffering is in God, then it's God.
0: Do you, do you know? So this is kind of a. I mean, this is almost tautologous what I'm about to say. But I, I've been teaching on the first and second century church to folks at our at our, at our church here. And, um, and on Ignatius, who, you know, on his way, uh, in his letter, I think, I think it's, I'm pretty sure, to the Romans, to the church in Rome, he says, don't, something to the effect of, don't hinder me from imitating the sufferings of my God. But of course, on the other side of that remarkable statement is, is the hope beyond the suffering, which of course is, would seem to be lost when that suffering is imported into the eternal life of God. it's Again, there's something immediately, um, if I can put it this way, just sexy about that, um, which suddenly loses its sheen when you realize that actually it's— um, and, and again, I'm just boiling down to brass tacks here— ultimately quite hopeless. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Fred, I've, I've been reading Rowan Williams' Looking East in Winter, a challenging book but really helpful for me, and um, because as a result, I've been learning a lot about— the warnings of long dead Christians about reducing things to their functions. <laughs> mm. um, that warning came to mind uh, in uh, as I was reading your book, not with respect to you, but something you were talking about in your discussion of how the doctrine of the Trinity relates to or um, shapes our ecclesiology, our theology of the church. What are, I'm thinking about Christian leaders here, so if there are pastors, Um, theologians, ordinands, seminarians, uh, even lay leaders who are listening. You know, we're at nodal points of, I think of them as, if you you picture a web here, we're we're at nodal points of responsibility um, because we are, on the one hand, we're proclaiming the truth about the triune God. We're also doing the practical day-to-day under-shepherding of his church in whatever our context might be. What are some of the risks that we need to keep in mind uh, as we go about this work in our nodal positions, is, th- is there a danger that our theology, especially when it comes to our understanding of the church, or of our roles in it, um, even of social relationships more broadly, can collapse into whatever's most convenient or functional in our doctrine of, of, of the Trinity? Does that make sense?
1: Mm-hmm, it does, yeah. And I haven't read uh, Rowan Williams. That's a pretty new book, right? Looking East in Winter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Blue Spray. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. But I know his his even his dissertation was on um, Eastern Christian uh, theologians. Yeah. Um, yeah. Certainly, you get into that um, early theology, and this resistance to functionalizing, you know, is is really strong. Um, I think it's because there's a contemplative. Um, Uh, mentality in that theology, Mm
2: -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. where you,
1: when you come to know God and to um, consider God deeply, and if someone sort of like shakes you out of that trance and says, okay, but what's the good of that? Like, what's the point? Mm. You know, you you come out of that (laughs) theological mindset and say, are, like are you are you unregenerate why would you ask me what is the value of like, what what's wrong with you <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know I'm, I'm a I'm an evangelical uh, I'm a church-based theologian I'm on team practical you know I want yeah. this to make a difference um, yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and yet this might be paradoxical but the only way it's going to make a difference is if that contemplative aspect of theology is is real and permanent
2: mm. if there's
1: a kind of One thing the doctrine of the Trinity is for, is for knowing God. Hmm. Um, You know, and if you wave your hands and rush me past that and say, yeah, but what's it for? Like, how do I run this elders meeting? (laughs) I'm going to say, um, uh, you know, again, I do want it to be practical, but there is a kind of glorious uselessness of Hmm. the knowledge of God. I love that that phrase. You don't want to drag down into this modern problematic of, um, practical versus theoretical. It's this is, um, you know, this this is above that. And so, mm-hmm. specifically, oh, so that that's one thing I want to say about that is right. What what do we mean by practical or impractical? Um, it, I think it's very practical to have some useless times of the appreciation of God. Mm-hmm. You know, I was that some of this might be coming out of my. I was an art major in college, hmm. and. Um, you know, one of the defenses of art is always going to have to be uh, beauty is worth seeing. Mm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. so, yeah. so, when you come out of all the trappings of the art and market and the place of the arts in modern life, uh, you really are just going to have to say, like, you know, beauty is for its own sake, and and art can serve that.
2: Mm. Mm.
1: The theology, especially of the contemplative side, um, has something to do with that. What One of the things this ends up saving us from is this acute functionalization of Trinitarian theology, where you go into it thinking, this is only going to be worth it, you know, if it has immediate payoff. And then you end up with really truncated notions of what payoff can be. So, mm-hmm. for instance, mm-hmm. you might say, draw me a diagram of the Trinity. I now want to use that diagram as a model of church life. So <laughs> I will now make one-for-one correspondences between, you know— the Father's role is this, and that maps onto the Pope's role is this, or, you know, the Spirit does this, and that maps onto... Um, you're just, by setting things up that way, you're you're doomed to make mistakes in carrying out that project of application.
0: That, I, I wonder if this actually helpfully segues us into another more obviously... <laughs> Uh, practical, non-ironically I say, <laughs> uh, another um, kind of more obviously practical question and that's the relation of Trinitarian theology in general to the Christian life. I, I mean Fred, two points in particular, you're I, I felt like I was waking up um, to to something. Uh, so let, let me see if I can kind of get it one of those moments. So at one point you say that soteriology stops short. Of what it really has to say, if all it offers is the economy, right? The, the historic saving works of God. Um, what do we lose in the Christian life if we don't move any further? So, for example, what do we lose in the cry of Abba, Father, if we don't move past the economy? Is, and what, what are, in what sense is the cry of Abba, Father, still a reality for the Christian, or is it?
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, that's um, that's the danger. So, on the one hand, when you say that um, when I deal with these themes, it can help you wake up to something that's um, that's going on. You know, that was that was going all going on the whole time. You sort of knew in some liminal way, but that you know, mm-hmm. kind of come through the wall and realize, oh, there's there's this whole thing here. Um, I could also put it in terms of danger, though. There there is a real danger of failing to register the Trinitarian depth of what's going on in salvation. Mm. So, to take the relationship with God, you know, under the heading of Abba, to take that seriously for a minute, if you don't ground that in a Trinitarian reality that's bigger than us and before us and and is actually the identity of God, then you're in—the danger here is that you might treat adoption by God or God being your Father, you might treat that as a metaphorical way— of describing whatever is going on between us and god so he Mm. saves us and how can i communicate that well well here's a good metaphor Uh it's as if we are sons of god
2: Uh Uh Uh
1: um you know whatever's really going on forgiveness redemption repurposing whatever the real thing is a really colorful way of describing it is as adoption and sonship Uh and so we cry abba um that's a that's a really dangerous way to handle that. Um, what I want to say is, no, the consistent witness of the church is that the right way to read scripture is that, that there is actual fatherhood and sonship within the being of God. Mm. That, that somehow the dynamics of life in the living God are the, the livingness of these relations of fatherhood and sonship. And that that's what we are uh, let into. Or Mm. given access to for our salvation. Mm. God could have saved us in other, more external, more merely external ways, I suppose. I mean, it comes down to what our problem is. If our problem is like that we are hassled by devils, God could have clearly saved us by dispatching a team of angels to save us. Mm. Um, Since our problem with God is more personal and internal, then you get this sort of salvation axiom from the early church that only God can save us. Mm. And therefore, it's kind of a proof of the deity of Christ. Therefore, Christ must be God if he brought about this kind of salvation. Mm. So it's that breakthrough to recognize that Father-Son language is not a metaphorical description of some other kind of salvation, but that it actually is uh, an imminent reality of God opened up to us for our appropriate uh, participation. Mm. And I'd want to push that pretty hard. I can be a little bit standoffish about participation language if it sounds too ooey-gooey and metaphysical, like we're going to be godded with God or, (laughs) you know, our stuff is going to be transformed into God's stuff somehow. I'm going to want to blow some whistles there and say, like, let's let's put up some careful boundaries here. Yeah. yeah. Um, But I won't stop at all with participation language if what we're talking about is um, being caught up into that father-son dynamic Mm -hmm. through the spirit of sonship. That's right. It really is that. Trinitarian reality that we are participating in there.
0: That's right. Oh, Fred, that is big. That is juicy. I like that. <laughs> and and so let's press into that or jump leap off from that, however you want to think of it, into a little bit on etern- the doctrine of eternal generation. Um, think so. Listeners who might not be familiar with that, if you say the if you ever say the Nicene Creed in worship. God from God, light from uh, light. from light. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to get into a discussion of eternal generation on a call with friends, <laughs> Fred Sanders. Here, here we go. In the book, with respect to eternal generation, you, you point out that the triune reality of God, uh, and again, we've already said this, it needs to be affirmed, not just because, you know, Athanasius said so, or any other church father said so, but because it's a biblical teaching. Um, you also in that chapter, though, and this is... A a wonderful piece from Gerald Bray to just weave in. You quote Gerald to the effect that the doctrine of eternal generation is the means whereby the inner life of the Trinity is opened up to Christian experience. I think think I'm accurately capturing your, your point there. So opening up the inner life of the Trinity to Christian experience, what does that mean? What does it mean uh, to have the inner life of the Trinity opened up to our experience? Um, I, I think you were just touching on this, but how does the doctrine of eternal generation achieve that or contribute to that?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And that that little Bray essay, uh, he uses the language of Trinitarian knowledge of God being inside information. Hmm. Um, um, and, I, and I think I think that's right. There are things we can know about God as if from outside. Um, but, but classically, um, if you think about a you know a jumbo theological system like by someone like Thomas Aquinas, there's going to be this differentiation where you say um, you can have accurate knowledge of God the Creator um, by reasoning rightly from the basis of creation. Hmm. But what God made in creation and uh, in, in God's ways with the world, it's always the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, working toward us in in you know what we would technically call the inseparable operations of the triune God towards mm-hmm. that which is without uh, 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 indivisible operations ad extra.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, which is great. It, it's great to affirm the unity of God and the fact that Father, Son, and Spirit are all working in everything that God does. Um, and you know, there's much we could say about that. Um, but it kind of poses a knowledge problem when you think, wait, if everything God does, God does as the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, at what point do I actually come into contact with any one of them in particular?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and you know, this is, a, this is worth kind of fretting about, but it's a, it's a classic Christian theological um, problem or challenge, because what it drives you to, the unity of God is so great, God is so unified, um, that the only way you can actually single out the Father for knowledge is by explicitly naming his relationship to the Son. Mm -hmm. So, it's only in relation that you can distinguish them. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to talk, anything you say essence-wise, Augustine would say, is only gonna get you the Father, Son, and Spirit, the one God. But if you begin to talk of God relation-wise, then you can say, oh, here's what's distinct about the Father, he is the Father of the Son. The Father stands in this relation to the Son. Now, that's, you know, big picture theological method. What it has to do with the eternal generation is if what we see in the incarnation of the Son is um, a manifestation of or an enactment of an eternal relation of the Father to the Son, that's where Bray says, oh, well, then we're inside. Hmm.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> this, is, this is actually the bit at which we are no longer just talking about the one God. Um, but we are actually talking about the Father's relation to the son.
2: Hmm.
1: Now, it's the Father's relation to the son in a um, in a new free act of God by which the eternal son becomes uh, the Son of Mary and for us and our salvation lives out the life of sonship in human um, uh, in human stuff. Yeah.
2: Right?
1: Yeah. in the assumed human nature. Yeah. Um, but that means that when we approach that, in the Gospels and in our knowledge of of God in Christ, we are getting a hold of the father-son relationship, which is internal to God.
0: Can we switch gears to the Holy Spirit Um, (laughs) about whom we've said little uh, thus far for, uh, I think for reasons you've addressed in the book. One of the most spiritually, theologically illuminating um, remarks that I've ever heard about the Spirit is that he is the gift whom Christ came to offer through his life, death, resurrection. And ascension, and for my very, you know, reformed evangelicalish uh, um, constitution, that was a that was a new ingredient. Uh, just hearing it put that way, the, the sending of the Spirit is, in a sense, the goal of the cross. And um, and yet, both historically, in terms of theological reflection today, um, sorry, historically and um, theologically, uh, in terms of practice, the Spirit is not the first move we make, right? Our, our pneumatology, our doctrine of the Holy Spirit, it's, I think, famously tricky. Um, ha, how is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit like and unlike the our, our Christology, our doctrine of Jesus and his work? Can you unfold that a bit for us? Mm.
1: Yeah. Um, so, like, uh, in this Trinitarian heading, the uh, Spirit is like the Son in that both the... Son and the Spirit are from the Father uh, in eternity by way of eternal processions, and also in salvation history, that the, the Son comes forth from the Father for us in our salvation, and the Spirit likewise, who has eternally been proceeding from the Father, hmm. and it's fine to insert and from the Son here, it doesn't, doesn't matter to the point I'm making, um, uh, for us in our salvation on the basis of the finished work of Christ, uh, the Spirit is poured out in this new way. Mm. um uh, to indwell uh, on the basis of, of the atonement yeah um unlike of course in a number of ways this, the spirit doesn't assume human nature into union with himself there's a there's a relatively independent vocabulary for talking about the spirit mm. um revealed in scripture you know it's you can say that the son takes your place or replaces you in certain ways you know in in key moments of salvation history of the atonement um but you wouldn't use that kind of language of the Spirit, right? You wouldn't say, that wasn't me, that was the Spirit. Mm. Uh, instead, you would say, no, there's something about the work of the Spirit that's like, um, I don't know, can I say collaborative? That's like empowering, um, instead of having this replacement element. Mm-hmm. And I think that's tied to the fact that the sun is incarnate and the Spirit is not. The spirit's mm. the the spirit's the the business end of the indwelling of God, yeah, right? It's through the indwelling of the Spirit that the Son in uh, lives with us also, and that even the Father is with us in hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, the Father's not sent to us or anything, but the Father is with us in the sending of the Son and the Spirit.
0: gosh, there's so much that's helpful there. This is a slightly throwaway comment because i I don't intend to dig into this to defend it, and it's probably a ditch that I'm about to fall into, but I think of just two um two ways in which the spirit kind of pop. I mean, one is when, when John Webster, um, a, a late hero, uh, you know, talks about God and creation, both as distributed doctrines. Right. Um, and the spirit is a place where there seems to be, uh, I mean, again, the, I, I get the point categorical cr- creator creature distinction, and I don't hear, hear me, hear what I'm not saying when I say this, but mm. there's a sense in which the Holy spirit is that kind of, to go back to that phrase of nodal point, you know, um, or when Austin Farrow talks about infinite and finite agency, um, there's a particular agency of the Spirit, I think, there. Now, I've said things that I have <laughs> no desire to dig into or to defend, but, um, yeah. but thank, thank you. I think that's really helpful. And it, yeah. and it actually leads to really the final question, um, which concerns evangelicalism, um, and <laughs> what it means to be an evangelical Trinitarian. Um, you, you say, uh, you know, thank goodness We evangelicals, we don't have a distinctive Trinitarianism of our own. We might sort of be Trinitarians in a distinctively evangelical way. We might love, serve, know the triune God evangelically as gospel people. But, you know, it's not that we're evangelicals first, Trinitarians later. We are knowers, lovers, servers of the triune God evangelically. And um, I, th- I think I'm capturing the spirit of what you say right there. You can correct me if correct me if I'm if I'm not, or if you want to uh, facet that differently. But in that chapter, this is what I'm getting at. You look to Irenaeus of Lyon, who provides this remarkable model that can help evangelicals as we're seeking to love and serve and know the Triune God evangelically. And that's Irenaeus's analogy of God's work by his Holy Spirit by his word and spirit, rather, Um, analogous to a man working with his two hands. Um, I mean, obviously, nobody is picturing, you know, God the Father with his head up off in the clouds and his two hands working down in creation. Clearly, this is a limited analogy. Um, (laughs) But can you just comment on the strengths of this approach for helping evangelical churches, ministers, leaders, individual believers um, as we're seeking to participate more deeply in the mission of God.
1: Yeah, uh, this great little uh, Irenaeus line that he, he says a few times in Against the Heresies, um, I'm kind of using it as a, a motif or a, a way to sort of um, hang some Trinitarian ideas on, you know, in, in order uh, things that are sticky or catchy, yeah. you know, that you can kind of pick up and, and continue using um, just when you're reading the Bible, when you're participating in worship, uh, that, something that'll help draw your mind back to some of the structure of Trinitarian theology. Hmm. So Irenaeus, of course, I should say, is using it in an anti-Gnostic context, where he's saying, um, God doesn't need created intermediaries to get stuff done, he's got his own m- intermediaries who just are him. I think it's hmm. Co- Colin Gutton um, phrased this as immediate mediation,
2: <laughs> oh, <there laughs> that is to say,
1: uh, contra the Gnostic ideas, um. God, is, God the Father, I would say, is directly involved with creation by way of the Son and the Spirit. So, so that's the the original context, which it's important. It gets to the integrity of creation um, and uh, God's relation to it,
2: hmm.
1: and it relates the God of salvation to the God of creation to the one God, which is you know that's Irenaeus is going to do that and disable all Gnosticism in advance thereby. But then, once you start working with the two hands of the Father, um, I just find it to be a really helpful way to think. When you want to think Trinitarianly, the first thing to do is not necessarily to draw a triangle and try to make it all work out with a three point argument. Um, Because that can lead us to some false, you know, falsely geometrical schematizations that just kind of get us off the track of Uh how the Bible talks. Uh Because you notice the Bible doesn't draw triangles constantly. It does it in a, a number of key places, Matthew 28, 1 Corinthians 13, etc. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 13, the, the great grace there at the end of that letter. Yeah. Um, um, but more often, it's going to say things about the Son and the Spirit, and I want to say, actually lean into that. If, if you're trying to think Trinitarianly, if you can tell me what the Son and the Spirit are up to in any work of God, you're pretty much there. Mm. You know, I mean, don't don't worry about leaving God the Father out of the uh, shot, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> out of the formulation. Um, if you can tell me what's, to use the big words, Christological and pneumatological
2: mm.
1: in anything, you're, you're moving towards a kind of a scope and breadth and balance that is going to line you right up with the deep Trinitarianism of Scripture.
2: Mm.
1: And as long as we've used the big words... You can go one step further and say these two hands are always coordinated with each other. So when you're thinking Christologically, it's always going to be a pneumatological Christology. Mm. And when you're thinking pneumatologically, there's going to be a Christological pneumatology going on there. Mm. And you can start to feel there. It might sound overly complicated. I use the big words, the big seminary words on purpose, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, But but what it draws you into is like, okay, so I'm saved because Jesus died for me on the cross okay, what what's going on pneumatologically in me saying that Jesus died for me on the cross? Well, I mean, for one thing, as soon as I have accurate, realistic knowledge and acceptance of the death of Jesus, I have it because the Spirit is bringing it about in me. Mm. You know, no one can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So there's this, um, at, just asking the question means you're immediately drawn to the broader reality of what's happening. Mm. And this you know, you're not wrong when you say you're saved because Jesus died for you on the cross, but to ask what's the Spirit up to in that is to bump you out of some ruts into the broader reality so that you can understand uh, the work of Christ there, um, as <laughs> you would say, as a nodal point, right? As a, yeah, yeah. As, as a cu- uh, culminating point of all that God is up to. And the same for the Spirit. If you, if you just start free associating about the Holy Spirit and fail to make it Christologically— you know, a Christological meditation on the Spirit. Mm. You're going to attribute to the Spirit all kinds of unspecified works that have nothing to do with Jesus. Mm. And you're going to have trouble squaring that with what the New Testament says about the Spirit, because the the, the New Testament is um, uh, resolutely committed to talking about the Spirit as the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of adoption. Mm. Um, so you're always going to have a Christologically normed pneumatology. These are just kind of the, the beginnings, you know, the trailheads yeah. of, of thought projects um, that I want to encourage people to start down these roads and don't worry too much about um, drawing the whole triangle and working your way around it. If you can tell me what the sun and the spirit are up to in anything, you're well on your way to a, a pretty systematic Trinitarian grasp of that subject.
0: That's Fred. That's that is so helpful. I mean, I think of I don't know. I sort of have always, in my own head, attributed this to Nikki Gumbel. I'm not sure if it comes from somewhere else, but you know, the line to have the word without the spirit is to dry up. To have the spirit without the word is to uh, blow up. To have the word and the spirit is to grow up. And um, and and I think I think what you've just shown us is that there are profoundly uh, biblical and um, classically Christian um, resources for filling that out and and affirming that. I think, Fred, we should probably draw a line here. Joy to chat with you. Um, Fred, thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. Folks, thanks for listening. I hope uh, many of you, if this book has been relevant uh, to you, will spend some time in Fred Sanders' new book, Fountain of Salvation, Trinity, and Soteriology. If it's been uh, just a little bit too heady, Fred has got uh, some other books that might be a better uh, starting place. You're always welcome to reach out to us at podcast at ridleyinstitute.com for a steer, on uh, reading recommendations also to share with us any questions you'd like to hear dealt with on the podcast. So um, if any of those apply to you, don't hesitate to reach out. We're looking forward to um, several conversations coming up. Oz Guinness, Jessica Hooten-Wilson, among others. I'm uh, happy to say we've got a conversation coming up now with Jason Baxter, Associate Professor of Fine Arts and Humanities at Wyoming Catholic College on his recent book with InterVarsity Press, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, How Great Books Shaped a Great Mind. I'll dust off uh, my copy of Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy in preparation for that chat. Hope um, at least a few of you will do the same. In the meantime, good to be with you. I'm Sam Forniker, and you've been listening to the Ridley Institute podcast.